Welcome everybody um, to our CETA seminar today. Um, really delighted to welcome JC Spender uh, to Dublin, albeit virtually. We had originally hoped to um, welcome JC here around this time last year, I think it was. Uh, but then owing to events, we had to cancel that. Um, but, but really happy that you agreed to do it um, virtually, uh, JC. So thank you very much for that. And I should let you know that when I sent out the invitation last week, I got some lovely emails from colleagues here telling me how delighted they were um, that you were going to be uh, giving the talk today. Thank you, Camilla. Um, it's been my habit in the year of the plague, actually, to get up very early in the morning and walk around while there are very few people uh, in the street. So I, I'm typically up at half past five in the morning. So I saw the dawn break this morning. Anyway, I'm delighted to see a few faces here. And I, I hope that I'll be able to interest you um, in some ideas uh, that I think are of very profound significance to those of us that are interested in management. So uh, first of all, this, this photograph, um, which I'm starting with, um, some decades ago, uh, Fergal McGrath invited me to come to Limerick for a talk. And I uh, took an early flight from London. And as we were coming into Limerick, uh, the sun was behind us, of course, and I looked out of the window and saw the green below, and I treasure that memory as a vision of one of the most beautiful things I ever saw in my whole life. So I just wanted to share that with you. Okay, so I want to talk about the private sector firm, and why do I want to do that? Okay, the nature of the firm, of course, relates to Coase's 1937 paper. And I think that the questions he asked in that paper have not been properly addressed. And I think that we don't pay enough attention to the fact that the firm, our not knowing about it, is a major problem, um, not only in business schools, but also in the real life of a capitalist democracy. So it's uh, part of what I, I want to address. And immediately, of course, entrepreneurs come into the picture. And the thing I want to stress uh, is a point that's not often made about entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs are agents of freedom, a very special kind of freedom that we think is very valuable in a capitalist democracy. And their freedom is that they can enact, create, build, generate whatever word we think works best. And the means of doing that is by generating a language. So you'll see immediately that I'm uh, pushing against the idea that there is some kind of theory of the firm that would be being articulated. Um, I think this is the problem for us in business schools, that we're still under the grip of a positivist notion that there must be a theory of the firm that if we discover, we can eventually begin to understand what managing is about and uh, how the economy works and so forth. Uh, my interest in language is because it becomes the apparatus by which an entrepreneur harnesses the labors and most importantly, the imagination of those within the firm. 
uh, within in quotes because we have no idea what it means to be within the firm. And this is one of the things I want to address. Those within the firm resolve the uncertainties existing in the world, for instance, the need for a new product uh, that have been selected by the entrepreneur. Uh, the consequence of meeting those uncertainties is to raise what we call the use values. So if I, uh, if I sell you um, some corn for your horse, it's raising the use value of the horse. A well-fed horse is worth more than a not-so-well-fed horse. So in my view, all economic value is grounded in use value. And I think Aristotle drew us down the wrong path by making a distinction between use value and exchange value. I think exchange value is simply the manifestation of somebody's sense of use value. Now, the essence of my talk is that I want to say, if we approach it from the point of view of language, which is, of course, a counter to the positivist view that there is one language for everything of interest, and if you can't put language to it, it's therefore not of interest. If we concede that there are local languages, then the purpose of creating that local language is to create a disjunction between the firm's language and the markets. Markets in plural, of course. So the firm, to those that control that language, becomes an apparatus to capture and monetize the use value of increase and therefore the firm is in its very nature a moral, ethical, and political matter, which we don't really have a very thorough understanding of. Okay, so I, I, here's, a, here's a caution. Um, of all people I might be talking to uh, with this message, uh, people in Ireland know about the use of language as a means of control. Now, I don't know the Irish history well enough to know that I will not offend some people with this very notion. To those that I might offend, I apologize from ignorance. But the very fact that you as a community understand about language and its impact and its control makes you the, absolutely the most wonderful possible audience for the points that I'm trying to make. As I say, a caution, I may get it wrong, and please forgive me if I do. That's simple ignorance, typical amongst the English. Okay, um, so here's some parts of the discussion. Now, over the COVID period, my way of thinking about this has evolved, transformed, degenerated, I don't know, changed in some way. So parts, I'm an ex-engineer, parts. Okay, machines have parts. Theories have parts. So that's one way of looking at this. And I've come to realize this is completely hopeless. What I mean by part is somebody taking part in a theatrical performance at the Abbey, perhaps. These are Shakespearean parts. And I've come to understand these parts. Uh, I, my wife and I, my wife Barbara and I, spend a lot of time watching uh, ballet. And I've come to feel that what I'm trying to do here is choreography. And the parts are the characters I'm trying to choreograph. And 
of course, I'm not really clear about how many people, how many parts there are here. Uh, I'm just grappling to identify a few in order to get a control over, over the quotes, the narrative or the dance or the whatever. So as you look at this, um, I think a play or a choreography might be the best metaphor for, you know, where the hell is JC coming from? I'm trying to make a bit of a dance. Okay, so uh, we have five characters available uh, at the moment. Uh, one is to do with uncertainty. Uh, second is to do with falsification, which I trust you all have at least a passing familiarity with. Third is the opportunity space, which is a term of mine. Fourth is entropy and the notion of boundaries to language. Uh, entropy is, is an infrequent visitor uh, to our discourse. Uh, and this turns out to be too bad uh, for reasons that I, I hope to be able to clarify. I, I have only just begun to get a grip on this. And then, of course, we have the fact that the, uh, my, my claim already made that the firm is an ethical and, and political entity, um, not, not an uh, insensate machine. And then I, I hope maybe we can have some questions at the end. Okay, so modes of uncertainty. We are trained into thinking about uncertainty as uh, something not known. And the positivist uh, tick, of course, is that everything interesting or real is knowable. So a state of uncertainty, such as Keynes uh, might talk about it, is being ignorant of what we presume knowable. Uh, we don't know the boundaries here, but this is ignorance. Uh, science is about poking Mother Nature in the side in order to enable us to be less ignorant about her secrets, um, and so forth. Now, clearly, uh, ignorance is a prevalent characteristic, uh, you know, is a frequent condition of the human, uh, uh, the human condition. Um, but the whole point is that the human condition is more complicated than that presumed by the positivist philosophy. It is not given to us to know everything. Indeterminacy is the point at which we introduce into the analytic apparatus somebody else like ourselves, not like Mother Nature. So you, you there, what the, I, fortunately I can see some faces. So, you know, hello faces, you there, okay? I do not know what's going on in your head. This is an aspect of the human condition. And therefore, our relationship is fundamentally indeterminate. You know, if you're sitting in the classroom as a student and I whack your head with a ruler, as I'm sure is in the true Irish tradition, I do not know what you're going to do. This is the point. Now, which do you think is the most important uncertainty if you're a manager? That you're ignorant of the perfect arrangement, thereby presuming it exists, and therefore making it a research project which has consumed hundreds and thousands and millions of student hours in the pursuit of endless statements about that model, uh, which fill the journals to no great effect? Or do you think 
it's about trying to make an impression on somebody else out there, a customer, a supplier, a competitor, an employee. So I think indeterminacy is clearly the predominant kind of uncertainty that's present in the managerial universe. And I'm therefore surprised that so few people in our community say it's indeterminacy, stupid, not ignorance, which leads on to incommensurability. Uh, as I said in my note, uh, you know, our minds are bounded and we know things in many different ways. And the challenge for action, reasoned action in the world is for us to pull together the many different ways in which we know the situation and create a defensible argument for acting in a certain way, A versus B. Okay, so we see, you know, politicians, we have a, a governor in New York State who's struggling to try and build a story for making his action uh, defensible. Um, we're having a hard time believing him. Okay? So incommensurability is about the pluralistic nature of our knowing. Ignorance is about our assumption that everything's knowing. Indeterminacy is our respect for other people like ourselves. Incommensurability is the pluralistic, uh, the plurality of our of our knowing. These three types of of indeterminacy uh, of uncertainty were the spur to my PhD uh, when I began in 1971. Before some people uh, whose faces I can't see were probably born, um, it took me an awfully long time to do it. Uh, but I, I had made uncertainty, as it were, the the the, the uh, spark um, for my for my thinking and my thesis, and it took me thirty years to realize you missed it again, JC. <laughs> There's a fourth uncertainty that you have to grapple with. As a manager, you have to find language that is relevant to the situation that you're engaging. There's no secret store of languages that we can go to and pick out languages associated with situations. It's the very languaging, to use a horrible term uh, by another colleague of mine, you might know, Georg van Crow. Situations don't come with language. Situations come, period. Languaging them, finding languages in which to address them is crucial, not only for ourselves, but also, of course, as, as managers. So uh, this, this is absolutely the kernel of everything uh, that I have thought and I assume shall think in the rest of my life. Um, but as I say, it was a, it was a great uh, moment when I realized I had to add a fourth. The list, of course, is endless. The nature of the human condition is that uncertainties are on an endless list. And if we were engaged in discussing something else, maybe writing a play or writing a poem, we might want to engage some other kinds of uncertainties. I think the picking of these uncertainties is our fundamental methodological strategy. Okay, falsification. Um, again, I'm sure you're all familiar with this. My point in going to falsification is number one, to say Popper is an idiot. Number two, our uncritical acceptance of Popper's notion of falsification is a mark of our own idiocy. And therefore, we want to critique falsification in order 
to understand how language actually works. And anybody that's done real science knows the story that non-scientists tell in business schools about how science is done is itself an idiotic story. But I, I won't dwell on that too much. So let's just go to the, you know, let's just go to the videotape as, as we used to say in the United States. Go to the videotape. Okay, hypothesis, H. All swans are white. Uh, this uh, intellectual exploration, of course, goes back to David Hume and beyond. Um, it's a form of knowledge. I know all swans are white, but I submit that to test. I submit it with an observation. Ah, there's a black swan. Ergo, the hypothesis is falsified. End of story. Well, actually, not end of story at all. Scarcely the beginning of the story. Now, those of you that have touched on syllogisms way back in, the, in, in your school days understand that the hypothesis is a general, generalization. The observation is, is a single statement. So falsification, like all syllogistic exercises, is the interplay of unique statements with generalities, sometimes called the interplay of the nomothetic and the ideographic modes of expression. Now, the question is, does this actually tell us anything about the hypothesis? And the answer is actually not very much because the concept of black is being introduced here into the middle of the syllogism. But that's a no-no. You can't introduce other language into the middle of a syllogism. The most favorite syllogism we know, of course, is that Socrates is a man. All men are mortal. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. There's no additional language being introduced there. So what Popper is doing, he's taking syllogism and syllogistic activity, introducing another language under the covers without talking about it and trying to draw, quote, logical conclusions, claiming, therefore, a asymmetry between the logic of falsification and the logic of verification. This is absolute philosophical garbage. And it's really a terrible disappointment that we keep on teaching falsification as the essence of the scientific method, which is the one method that we've chosen for discussing management. Okay, we're shooting ourselves in the very private parts. So what is black? Is it simply an absence of white? Or is there some other external definition of it? Which is the point that we are being... Uh, persuaded to pay attention to negative ed evidence. Well, what kind of idiocy is that? Even positivism, positivism itself says we want positive evidence to drive the discussion, which leads us to the notion of science as a grab, grab bag of generalities, not falsified, which is a very curious definition and a way of applauding science if the scientific method is that which we have adopted as our lodestar. So I'm interested in moving away from science towards art. Now, I want to be clear, I'm not trying to persuade any of you. Uh, you all have your own ways of thinking and uh, you've invested like us, most of us 
an enormous amount of intellectual effort and time uh, into learning to think a particular way. I'm not interested. I, I mean, my goal here is not to change the way you think to the way I think. I'm too old, you're too old to do that. All I'm trying to do, I think, is, is to point to an escape route from the prison of positivism, for it, is, it has become a prison for us. And I happened upon, when I first came into this community as a, a relatively experienced business person, I happened upon seeing the key to the door of the prison, which was lying on the floor, ignored by many people. That key is the concept of uncertainty. And my attention was drawn to it by reading Frank Knight's Risk, Uncertainty and Profit, which was one of the three or four points that I, I can recall as the beginning of my intellectual journey. For the first time, I had a question that really interested me. And I understood that uncertainty might prove a key out of this uh, philosophical prison uh, that we have built for ourselves. Okay, the opportunity space. The opportunity space is me saying, one of the things we don't understand about uncertainty is you have to know something before you can know of uncertainty. So I see uncertainty as an impediment to something that we think we know. Why we can't reach a goal that we have imagined. Without Previously knowing something, uncertainty means nothing, which then leads to the observation that the modes of uncertainty are complementary to the modes of knowing. So if we know in just one way, in a positivist way, where we presume that everything is knowable and everything knowable is philosophically meldable with everything else we know, then we only have one kind of uncertainty, which is ignorance of that way of knowing. But if we actually exist in the real world, not in some idiotic ivory tower, if we exist in the real world, we know there are other people and our relations with other people are a very interesting matter, essential to management and to living after all, you know, since we are social animals. So the different modes of knowing give us the different modes of not knowing, not the other way around. So this is a little map of the different ways in which, uh, it's very stylized, uh, different ways in which an entrepreneur might know the uncertainties in the situation. So we take funding, okay? Can I get funding? This is the side, side yes, I know how to get funding. And this side says, no, I don't know how to get funding. I have to go and do it. It then becomes a dimension of the practice. Here are government standards. Okay, we understand the government standards. Oops, we don't understand the government standards on this side of the line. We don't understand how we're going to do a trade-off or meld, meld what we know about funding against what we know about government standards. Likewise, competitors, marketing, and so forth. I put dotted lines in here. Because, of course, everything we can know about a social situation is not only uncertain, it is also clearly dynamic. 
it's changing all the time. So the opportunity space is a kind of wobbling through space, changing all the time, depending on government policy, technological advances, trade union activity, blah, 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 what competitors are doing, etc. Now, this, this is a six-dimensional space, as I've drawn it. My PhD argued that typical businessmen in typical industries typically have about a 12-dimensional space. That is the industry recipe. The 12 or thereabouts dimensional space which characterizes a particular industry, whether or not it's dairy milk farming, iron foundering, travel agency, banking, etc. Different set and therefore a different language to be constructed to occupy this space of unknowns. So the task is to fill this empty space with a specific language. And we know this activity perfectly well from doctors. We admire doctors who are excellent diagnosticians. Can they tell us how they do diagnosis? No, that's the whole point. It's an art form. The medical art form is dealing with the unknowns. It's not ordering a test. That's the purely mechanical stuff. It's the unknowns that differentiate the doctors of note from the doctors of no note. So the entrepreneur is somebody who fills this space with language. The language is specific to the situation and, of course, the people. So the first rule in rhetoric is read the audience. Who are the other people involved in this language game, in this Wittgensteinian language game? The second, as I've indicated in that little note of mine, the second task is to select a language with which you can interact uh, with your audience. Entropy. Um, Now, I I used to be an engineer, and, you know, I I learned uh, a bit about entropy uh, as an engineer, and um, sort of term interested me a lot, um, but I kind of forgot about it. And then in the last two, three years or so, um, I've become much more interested in it. Now, uh, some of you, I assume, have some idea of what entropy is. So we have ways of talking about it. And the most familiar is disorder. So the idea is if you put some petrol into a car and you drive, one of the things that happens is that the petrol gets burnt, creates heat, which is transformed into motion, which is useful, and then some of it goes out the back in the exhaust gas. The result is that the high degree of chemical order in the petrol becomes diffused and disordered as motion, friction of tires on the road, blah, 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 air friction around the car, and exhaust gas. So it's the disordering of something that is ordered. This is the discussion of entropy. And it leads to the, you know, the recognition that, that we're headed sometime in the future, if we understand what time is. Uh, sometime in the future, we're headed to some kind of heat death if we don't have some other kinds of death before we get to heat death. So it's a whole notion of the universe running down. This is expressed uh, for uh, people interested in thermodynamics um, as 
every operation in the real world leads to a degradation of energy. Now, there are two things about that. Uh, so I put here Carnot's conjecture about reality. Given the frailty of language and our inability to know, quotes, the truth, we sometimes have debates about whether or not the real exists, because how can we actually state it? Now, Carnot's conjecture is wrong. The real is not something that you can speak about. The real is, in fact, unspeakable, which is the way I want to use it. The second law of thermodynamics says every process in the, re in the real leads to an energy degradation. Turn that around the other way. Whatever is energy degrading is real, whereas whatever we say is not demonstrably provable. Do you get me? Entropy, in fact, is a word that says reality cannot be captured in language. This is, of course, an absolute confrontational attack upon the presupposition of positivism, which says everything real and valuable and important can be captured in language, and a logical, rigorous language at that. Well, of course, Carnot, Carnot's conjecture says, uh-uh, wrong. Everything real cannot be captured in language. Therefore, don't aspire to capturing everything in language. Why not just accept that the real exists and maybe has a characteristic that we can talk about? That characteristic being the second law of thermodynamics. Now, I, I, I see this as, as the most astonishing insight. And there are many people, uh, I think, okay, I, I haven't found the, the citations yet, but I think there are many people who argue that the second law of thermodynamics is the most fundamental thing that we know, which is essentially knowing that we know but can't say. So that's kind of hovering in the background. The point being familiar, of course, because we can imagine a perpetual motion machine, but we, quotes, no, we can't build one. Why can't we build one? We can't explain. It's by assumption from Carnot, the second law of thermodynamics. There are always losses, and therefore it can't. Now, is it useful to think of management as involved in the real world or involved in a complex of perpetual motion machines? I think for me, the answer is obvious. What I want to make use of here is the implication that if we have a language and we are philosophically astute, we know that there's a gap between the language and the reality that we're talking about. So the whole essence of my talk is that gap. And therefore, the entrepreneur creating a language addresses that gap not merely addresses it and regards it as all us researchers are taught to regard it as an impediment to the pursuit of knowledge. The entrepreneur understands something much more profound. That gap is the secret to economic value generation and ownership. So imagining something and then showing you can do it may be a source of value, but the firm is an apparatus 
for claiming, owning, and controlling the process in the pursuit in a democracy, in a capitalist democracy, in the pursuit of, of uh, economic value. So again, our entropy is pointing to the irreversibility, uh, and the unrecoverable losses involved in all activity. Now, one of the reasons I got interested in this, transaction cost, oh my God, you know, where did that suddenly spring into the picture from? One of the reasons I got interested in this is because uh, those of you that have read uh, Knight's, Frank Knight's Risk, Uncertainty and Profit closely, as I'm sure all of you have, um, know that several times in that book, he bemoans the absence of physical and thermodynamic entities like mass and energy. He said, if what we really need in order to understand economics is notions of mass and energy and friction. So many people looking at transaction costs say, oh, yeah, that's code saying, you know, lots of friction in there. You know, um, well, uh, alas, Ronald, that's not quite what you were trying to tell us. You, you were trying to say that there's something fundamentally involved in the notion of unrecoverable losses that tells us about the nature of the firm. So I, be, I began to get interested in, in thinking, uh, do we have any examples of the introduction of thermodynamic discourse uh, in, into, our, in, into our community? Um, and we have one very signal example, if we're talking about entropy, which is uh, Nicholas Georgescu Rogan, and some of you might be familiar with him. And uh, I was just talking to a colleague of mine this morning about, about his work. Uh, uh, Georgesco Rogan's use of entropy is because he wanted to make the point, which is, of course, very important today, that the planet is a bounded energy system and we're rubbishing the planet. Uh, he was not particularly interested in focus on, on the firm. Uh, so I want to focus on the firm rather than on the planet. But uh, Georgesco Rogan would be, as it were, the first stop to somebody uh, discovering uh, the degree to which entropy is discussed uh, in our community. Um, another colleague, uh, alas, uh, long dead, uh, Max Boiseau, whose name some of you might know, uh, who for 20 years beat me over the head uh, trying to get me to think about uh, knowledge in, in a thermodynamic way. And anybody that's interested in that, I, I can help them do that. So here we are. Okay, um, we're thinking about markets and hierarchies. God bless you, Oliver, wherever you are. Um, I want to say, uh-uh, it's the freedoms in markets and hierarchies that should actually interest us because the firm is a political apparatus in a political context. And for decades, I've been astonished at the absolute absurdity of our community trying to pretend that the firm and the economy are apolitical concepts in a capitalist democracy. Well, I mean, what kind of greater absurdity can, that, can there be? So if we want to discuss real markets, and alas, Oliver, in the beginning was not markets. In the beginning was families and hierarchies 
family hierarchies specifically were in the beginning? And were there freedoms? Well, this is Frank Knight's project. He's saying, I need to understand whether or not the economic system, as we implement it, expands and protects individual freedom, or does it not? So he said the true work of economists is assessing whether or not the social institutions that have evolved in human society are conducive to freedom or not. That is the true work of the economist, not the sociologist, because he's a child of Weber's distinction of life, spheres of life, and, and he's not cutting the economic sphere of life off from the others. He's merely saying, we apparently live in a time at which the economy looms very large in our lives. In the past, religious, intellectual, aesthetic, uh, intellectual uh, eras uh, loomed larger. Our time, drawing his message from Max Weber, our time is marked by the, the significant impact that the economic sphere of life exerts on our lives. And I, Frank Knight, therefore want to understand how the economic sphere is organized and whether or not it does actually enlarge and expand or does it constrain individual freedoms. That is the ethical issue that drove his inquiry. And it begins, of course, with language. So he says that the most fundamental of all social institutions is not the economy, it's language. Without language, nada, nothing. Uh, and I mentioned uh, Liana Faber's wonderful book on medieval markets and the generation of language in medieval markets. And here you see a, a medieval market. This is a medieval picture of medieval market. And what are these people doing? I mean, they have goods and they obviously have uncertainties but they have language. They're generating language. The key to economics is the generation of language to deal with certain kinds of uncertainty, in particular, the uncertainties of incommensurability and indeterminacy. But the expectation is not to find a language which captures the truth. That's the blind alley that we have uh, pursued. Of course. And, and if here you look at the beginning of non-family hierarchies, this is from Diderot's Encyclopédie, as you know, uh, clearly this group of people cannot do what they're doing without language. So here's, here's the end of it. The language that the entrepreneur creates in order to in generate or conduce or control the collaboration of the people who decide, who have decided to join, which is a question that Coe's addressed glancingly. He knew that there's something very specific about why do people come into firms? And he, and he took his thing from a, an author called Bat, B-A-T-T, the master and servant relationship. And he's asking the question, why would free citizens volunteer to come into a firm where they're obviously subject to the power of managers 
to constrain their activity? That's his question. That language that they create is a veil that prevents outsiders understanding how the firm works, and by the same token, prevents the people working in the firm from understanding the market value, not use value, the market value of the work that they're doing. You know, obviously, if you're working on a, on a Fordist production line, you know, and you're whacking a rivet into a piece of steel all day, how are you supposed to know the economic value of that? The purpose of the entrepreneurial language in a capitalist democracy is to capitalize on that ignorance. Because you, the entrepreneur, you sit at the interface between these two very different languages. The price system, assuming it were as perfect as economists talk about it, as an entrepreneur, you're still selling stuff and you still need to know something about the market and the language with which you speak to customers and suppliers and government regulators. So there's an external language that you need to be familiar with that you don't generate But what you do generate is a veil between that external language and the internal language, which conduces the activity and imaginations of the people who, quotes, join the firm. And that gap is crucial to the notion of control in a capitalist firm. It is the ethical problem that the people in business ethics should be focusing on, instead of which, I'm sure you all know, the characteristic the characterizing problem in business ethics is I have a firm. This is what I call the John Bunyan theory of business ethics. I have a firm. Uh, it's like a bus. Should I drive it to the veil of despair or should I drive it to the mountain of hope? Clearly a very important question, but not characteristic of the firm. The firm is itself not neutral. The firm itself is an ethically and morally loaded concept. It is a social and political concept. The notion of the firm is a system of power. You remember that wonderful phrase uh, from Hobbes, uh, little corporations in the entrails of the larger corporations. The firm is a system of apolitical power within which managers have been permitted to exercise power, which is not uh, in the elected uh, representative system. You don't elect managers. Managers appoint themselves and employ people. Getting back to the question of what it means to be to join the firm. This is a system of power which is radically, radically different from the social system of power. That disjunction is crucial to understanding the firm, and it gives it not only an ethics, but also a politics. So the argument is, before we go for a beer, is that creating freedoms that did not exist before the entrepreneurial act? And the answer, you and me and everybody else who's paid any attention to the real world, where people are looking for jobs because they want to put shoes on their kids, Of course, it creates an opportunity for me to use my otherwise valueless imagination in order to put shoes on my kids. So there's a, a double action here of freedom. There's a constraint, which Coase touches on, but there's a freedom. And that freedom 
as I'm sure we all would agree, is 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 deeply uh, a, a a very significant aspect of the concept of a capitalist democracy to generate small freedoms as a result of permitting quite larger and significant constraints. The work-life balance okay, is an exploration of those constraints. Uh, the labor law is an exploration of those constraints. Uh, the reason for having government intervention into the firm, which you remember is quite new, the very first aspect of government involvement in the firm were the child labor laws in the 1890s. Prior to that, firms operated their own empires. Um, entrepreneurs and managers operated in their own enterprise, uh, uh, empires. Anyway, um, there, that's uh, some note I'd like to conclude on. And uh, perhaps some of this was of interest. This talk was titled Towards a Firm of Our Time by J.C. Spender. Thank you for listening to the seminar which took place virtually on Friday, March 5th, 2021.